fun this morning. Who grew up, well, you don't have to raise your hand for this one. How many of us grew up when we thought fun in church were like polar opposites? Come on. Hey, guys. Hi. I need, I need people to talk back, okay, because we're having a conversation this morning. How many of us grew up in church? You don't have to raise your hand, but like say something. I don't, I know. I kind of did set you up on that. Say something. I grew up, I had the worst church ever. No, that's not what I'm trying to do. I grew up, actually, I had incredible, uh, incredible uh, life growing up in church, but I know for without a shadow of a doubt, that's many of our experiences. We grow up thinking that fun is actually one of the commandments, like thou shalt not have fun, right? Come on, adults, that's our fault. It's our fault. Growing up in school, right? <clears throat> no fun while learning allowed. Am I right? I know I'm right because I was there. Now, I also went to <laughs> a private Baptist school, so maybe that's kind of part and parcel. It's, wow, hi. Let there be. So, you know, fun is not absent from church. It certainly isn't absent from Jesus. I think Jesus, I, the first thing, what's the first thing Jesus ever saved? A party. First thing Jesus ever saved was a party. Some of us, that might offend some of our kind of like uh, religious thinking or theology. When I say religious, I mean that in a negative sense. But recognize the first thing Jesus ever saved was a party. Not only that, ethically, when they had already drunk much wine, he made more of it. One, one preacher once said, I think the reason that Jesus made more wine was because it was his disciples that drank it all up. He felt responsible for it. He's like, gosh, I brought these 12 guys. They're so immature, but gosh, they have so much potential. They drank up all the wine. Now I have to go back behind them and fix their mess. Listen, some of us have this idea that this was like unfermented grape juice. Welch had not created that yet. I'm not endorsing alcoholism. What I am endorsing is Bible. the Bible says that wine is joy to the soul. It makes a merry heart. When we are filled, the Bible says, be not drunk, in the, be not drunk but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Come on. So there is, a, there is a wine in heaven right now. Do you know, how many of you guys know right now that Jesus is fasting wine? Jesus at the Last Supper said, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine again until I'm with you in my kingdom. Why? So that there is, the, the point is that naturally there's a spiritual wine. Jesus is the fruit of the vine, okay? We get to partake in that holy communion. Oh, communion is such a beautiful thing. It's so transcendent. It's not just a religious activity. It's not just a ritual. We're actually heavenly partakers, it says, of the divine presence, so there's a joy in the spirit. What are the fruits of the spirit? How many of y'all are afraid I'm going to fall off of here? Some of y'all are like, would it make you, what I'm, okay. Fear is not a fruit of the spirit. <laughs> it is, if we could get Brad, I want to put a request in to make this ledge a little bit thicker. Okay. Um, but yeah, fruit of the spirit. Somebody shout it out. Love, joy, oh my gosh, time out, time out. Peace, I know we all love that one, but love, joy, joy. So that means joy is not something you can just drum up, right? This is actually from the spirit. There's a difference. One person once said, and I think there's truth in this, that there's a difference between happiness and joy, that happiness is dependent on your happenings. The circumstances of your life creating for you the right, you know, uh, situations to finally put a smile on your face. If we wait for our happenings, our circumstances to give us joy, we're going to be waiting a long time because Jesus promised us something. In this world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart, take courage. I have overcome the world. Love joy. Isn't joy so good? Listen to this. I can't tell you. Listen. Also, by the way, Joy is a commandment. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Um, 
All right. How many of you guys like speak to your soul? Who thinks that's like new age? Anybody? It does sound kind of new age, right? But you know, new age is nothing but a counterfeit of kingdom. It is a counterfeit. David would say, he would speak to his soul. He's in the Psalms. He says, oh soul, why are you so cast down inside me? Arise and hope in the Lord. Isn't that good? How many of you guys need some hope? Nobody? Come on. Somebody. Like, guys, I'm super charismatic. I'm super Pentecostal. I need you to speak back. I won't feel accepted in the Lord unless I hear you. Like, give me like an amen or like a come on, brother. I was at a service one time. This lady, she was so amazing. I, I can't imagine being the preacher that during that service because he had to have had so much confidence just by her being there. Because every time he said anything, she'd go, preach, preacher, preach, preacher. And I'm just like, man, that, I want to be in that service with her because I feel like I, I can't miss. I'm up here. It doesn't matter if it's in the strike zone, out of the strike zone. I can't miss. I'm swinging at everything. It was awesome. Everybody was uncomfortable in that service. <laughs> she was great. She was not. I think she knew who she was in the Lord. Guys, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is seriously a fruit of the Spirit. You know what that means? It is not of this world. Joy is countercultural. If I turn on the internet, if I listen to the radio, probably like AM, I listen to a lot of like political commentary. You can't listen to any of that stuff without hearing just a bunch of angry, upset, irritated people. So if you listen to that kind of stuff, which I don't say don't do, because I, I think it can be important. But if you listen to it and you don't have the fruit of the spirit, you're going to be drawn in and irritated. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just because people think things different than you. We don't have an excuse to get irritated by people because they think things different from us. That's not the kingdom. It's like so, so not the kingdom. Okay, so joy is a fruit of the spirit. Let's, I want to read this one verse here. This is Psalm 105. Praise. Uh, there's some of us that think, you know, praise particularly is musical. And I know that, you know, I, I would say the majority of us know that that's not exactly true. Um, all throughout the Old Testament, worship was very, you know, ritualistic. And by the way, that's not a bad thing. Where is your heart at in that process? That's what matters. Um, and in Psalm 51, God says, we'll turn there a little bit later. But God says, the sacrifice I want is a broken and contrite heart. So it's like, I don't you know, I don't want more bulls from you right now. Your ritual means nothing to me because your heart's far from me. And then right after it says, so now that you get that right, okay, I'll receive your sacrifices. Isn't that amazing? So God is like, he's, he, he likes some of this stuff. He likes our process, but it's like, if our heart's not in it, he's like, dude, shake off the process. Get out of that ritual stuff and just come and just love me with all of your heart because that's what matters most to me. So, but praise is not first musical. So raise your hand if you're not musical. No, I'm kidding. But like how many of us are not, we consider ourselves not to be particularly musical. You know, we're not all Betsy Taylor. You know, we love you, Betsy, but geez, you know, let's save some room for the rest of us. I'm kidding. But no, seriously, we're not all very musical. Some of us feel like when we enter into a worship service, quote unquote, with music, we, like we don't have something to offer because maybe we can't sing in tune or something like that. But I'm telling you, those kids didn't care. They didn't even know. Do you know, there's something about innocence. There's a bad ignorance. We would all agree, right? There's a bad ignorance. Who would agree that there's a bad ignorance? There's a good ignorance too, though, isn't there? The kind where you're innocent of like all the things people think about you. I'm ignorant of your opinions of me. That's freedom. Come on, somebody say that. I want to be ignorant of your opinions of me, but I want to know what the Father thinks of me. And when I do that, I can go into a worship service, regardless of my musicality, whatever my giftings are, and I can lift a song up to the Lord. 
Now, a lot of us don't really kind of understand the logic behind music. There's not a a lot of logic behind music, is there? Some of us are like very analytical, right? I'm so analytical. Like I need things to make sense. I need dots to connect. I need equations to like work out. And then it's like, "Mm mm-hmm, I feel good. I feel oriented in the world. I feel very sound in where I'm at. I understand things. Some of us, that is like the further, that's like the most illogical thing. You're like, what do you mean you need all that? I just need things to feel right. (laughs) Amen. Music is a whole different type of logic. And even though it is, and really in reality, it's incredibly mathematical. Um, You can see patterns in music. Um, You can see like just the the logic of God manifest, the logos of God manifested in music. It's beautiful. But a lot of us don't really understand music because we want it to like, make sense um, in some kind of uh, philosophic kind of way. We need it to kind of have this, you know, again, logical thing where it just kind of makes me understand the world around me. But in, in reality, music doesn't, it doesn't really serve that kind of purpose. It serves an entirely different purpose, which is beauty. Come on. Bill, I love Bill Powell. I'm, I love you, Bill. Um, I love Bill Powell, I love Bill Powell because Bill is a man who understands beauty. I, I mean this. I can't talk to Bill without him passionately expressing something that he's seen, listened to, or watched. And it, he's not coming out in these like flowery, poetic words. But what it is, is it's, Chuck, I've tasted the transcendent in this thing. It's what is beautiful. And we get that in the arts. But a lot of us want art to make sense. We look at a a painting and we go, why does that cost $3,000? Because the transcendent beauty that someone, the value that someone put on that was worth that to them. That's incredible. So there's something about music that seems a little bit illogical, but in reality, what it does, it actually touches on the logic of God. Because God is beauty. God is love. God is musical. Now, whether you like it or not, whether you think you, and I I would argue that if you think you're not a musical person, it's probably been something that's been taught to you more than it's been like, than than it is actually truth. I'm not saying everybody is gifted in music and everyone can sing. No, that's not true. Some people just don't have that particular gift. However, it doesn't mean you can't participate and you can't do it with joy in your heart. All right. Does this make sense? I'm I'm trying to take us back. Who who of you have read uh, The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis? The last book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. In the last battle, you get, is it the last battle? I think, am I getting it right? Where it shows, I, it's not, it's the magician's nephew. In the magician's nephew, the, the first book in the series, um, you see Aslan create the world. And there's actually other, like C.S. Lewis is drawing from, from other contexts, like ancient contexts, but he's putting it, it's amazing. He's doing what we did this morning. Is he hum, C.S. Lewis humbles himself, takes incredible concepts and brings them down so that kids can understand them. So what you see is in the, in the magician's nephew, Aslan sings the universe, sings Narnia into existence. Suddenly, um, they're there and it's all dark. And when I say there, it's not the Pevensey children. They're not there yet. If you're familiar with the stories, it's, uh, somebody remind me, it's, um, it's Diggory. Diggory, who I won't ruin the books for you. Anyways, he's an important person later on in the stories. <clears throat> he's there, and um, I can't remember the other one, the girl that's with him. Uh, is it Polly? Somebody say yes if they remember the story. So they're there. Uh, they've kind of been thrown into Narnia before it exists. And suddenly what they hear, it's just all darkness around them. And then suddenly they hear like, like orchestral music, like this far off sound and it's slowly growing and building. And then finally they see Aslan, this giant lion singing the world into existence. That's beautiful. He's singing it into existence. I believe, I truly believe that when John in John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God and the word was God. That word logos is like this reverberating logic of God, the knowledge of God, this sound going out. I believe God is like a a resonating chamber. You guys know what a resonating chamber is on a guitar, right? 
God is like, that's what's, it, there's this resonating life, music, sound, vibration, force, the logic of God that was released in the beginning. And I, I truly believe God sung the world into existence. It says in, uh, I believe it's in Proverbs 8, that wisdom, oh my gosh, how many of you guys think wisdom is like a boring old school teacher? Proverbs 8, it says, wisdom was with him in the beginning. I'm going to find it. Bear with me because this is just too good to not read. Is, is Proverbs before or after Psalms? It's after, right? <clears throat> so many Psalms. All right. Proverbs 8. I'm pretty sure if I got my reference right, guys, it's 8 or 9. If somebody sees it before me, shout the verse number. Here it is, verse 22. <clears throat> so it does wisdom not call is verse one, right? Does not understanding lift up her voice on the heights? It's already like very musical already. So verse 22, the Lord possessed me. Uh, one, it says, I got a note at the bottom. It says it could be fathered. Uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament said created. But it says the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his works. The first of his acts of old, all right? I'm not gonna find the actual verse. It says though it, he was daily his delight. Here it is, verse 30. Then I was beside him like a master workman and I was daily his delight, bored out of my mind, wishing he could get on with the process. No. Then I was beside him like a master workman and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Wow. How many of you guys actually believe that God is delight, delighted in you? Amen. He really, really is. All right. Psalm 105, or uh, yeah, Psalm 105. Just to hammer the point home here. Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Verse two, sing to him in tune. No, sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works, glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Verse four, who wants to see a Bible verse? Some of us, you know, we've talked about 24-7 worship and prayer here a lot. You want to see a Bible verse that gives you permission for 24-7 worship and prayer? It's all over the place. Verse 4, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. I, can, I don't have to stop. We don't have to stop. There's joy. Isaiah 57, I think it's 57, it could be 56. It says there's joy in his house of prayer. I just think that's amazing. All right, who likes that? Raise your hand. I like it. So there's joy. We have joy this morning. Um, <clears throat> let's pray. Can we pray? Can we all, uh, who wants to stand? If you want to stand, will you stand with me? You don't have to stand. I've been bossing you around this morning. Father, we're so thankful that we have joy in you. We're so thankful that you're not stuck up. You're not prudish. I just thank you that um, you're the same in both Testaments. <laughs> you're happy in the Old Testament and sometimes you're severe in the New Testament. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful that you have joy. We thank you for the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We're so thankful, Lord. Father, I pray this morning for our kids. I pray for our adults who need to remember what it's like to be a kid. Lord, you said that um, to enter in the kingdom, we had to have faith like a child, that innocence to just come up to you. 
whether we have it all figured out or not. Lord, I just pray that you raise up at King's Church an army of kids, a true child army of those who worship and praise, who know what you've made them for, that you made them, Lord, that you have ordained praise for them. In Jesus' name. So I have a story. Um, In 2007... I've told this, you know, a little bit of my story from time to time up here. In 2007, I became a a Christian as an adult. I gave my life to the Lord as an adult. And, you know, there's a difference. Uh, Some of it has to do with recognizing what you're getting into. Um, I think, Brad, is it it Mark 5 or 6 where it talks about the cost of discipleship, right? So there's something about when you're an adult, you recognize the cost of discipleship a little bit more. As an adult, I realized that if I said yes to the Lord, I couldn't keep doing the things with the friends I had at the time because they were living in a very different trajectory, right? They were going on a different path. And I I knew that that was gonna mean that I had to give my life up. So in 2007, I did that, um, And, and by the way, it was, I always described it as like, uh, you know, a balance, you know, it was like, there's a dung heap on one side of the balance and golden bars on the other side. It was an easy choice because I had lived the other life for long enough and I was really done with it because all I knew how to do, I was really, really, really good at messing my life up. And I thought, well, Lord, if that's it, then this is a no-brainer. I'm going to go over here because you're probably way better at leading me than I am at leading myself. It's like you can only, like, get your heart broken so many times by getting in bad relationships (laughs) before you're like, all right, Lord, I'll let you lead me because I'm done with this because it just keeps killing me. So it was 2007 that I gave my life to the Lord. And there was a group of us, uh, you guys know, some of y'all know Josh Karadman. Josh Karadman was with me at the time. And there was a group of us all that really just kind of divinely, supernaturally got like caught up in the things of the Lord. Um, And we all just gave our lives to the Lord around the same time and just became very radical and ran hard after God. As hard as we had run in the other direction away from God, we had just 180 degrees turned to God and were just hungry for, for everything thing. Just give it to me. Give it, I, I need it all, right? So at that point, you don't know why certain things happen, but we all just had this insatiable thirst for the presence of the Lord. I mean, that's why, right? Because it's his presence. But like we all wanted to be in, in worship all the time. We found ourselves, it didn't matter where we were at, we'd get a little CD player, we'd get, you know, a, an iPod, whatever we had at the time, and we'd throw music on and we'd sing over top of the radio because that's just, we, we couldn't have enough of it, right? It was like before, I find myself, like I said, just at a party doing the wrong thing. Now I found myself in like the new covenant party, presence of the Lord being filled up with his spirit. And it was a complete transformation. I didn't know why that was happening. All I know is that this is where I need to be. And like you guys, who of you know, like when I say revelation, you know, that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. Basically revelation is knowledge and there's a type of revelation. It's an opening up. You see your eyes. I see it. It's that eureka moment. You don't always know why you have it. You just know it's there. It's an awareness of the truth. Okay. And I, we had an awareness of the truth. We couldn't tell you why logically we couldn't go. These are all the theological points why the Bible talks about worship, but we knew we had been caught up raptured into this new realm place of worship. And it really is a realm. It's the, it's, it's the heavenly realm, right? It's where his presence is at. And I remember distinctly, we were in, I don't even know what house or where we were at. We were in somebody's like, I want to say it was like their, like a a garage they had or something like that outside and had an an upper room. And we were all up there in this like attic area. There's like six or seven of us. And I distinctly, we were all (laughs) worshiping the Lord, like, you know, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Cause like we were, some of us were having visions. We were seeing dream, like having visions for the first time. Some of us were speaking in tongues for the first time. None of us had a grid for this stuff. It was like all brand new. It was like book of acts. Like this was stuff that most of us didn't grow up with. Or if we did, it was very little. We didn't know it was for us. We just thought maybe it was for like the special kind of gifted anointed people or whatever. And this was happening 
And I remember distinctly being up there, just completely zoned out of anyone else in the room, just me and God, and this knowing falls on me. And there's nothing, by the way, there's nothing like knowing. Knowing what you're made for. There's nothing like it. It, it, it fulfills, it satisfies your d- deepest desires. To know, to truly know, to have the deepest question of your heart answered. Why am I here and what am I here for? And this is what God said to me. He goes, Chuck, this is what you're here for. And it was what we were there doing. It was the, the act, the, the place where we were at in his presence, lifting up worship. There wasn't a single musician in the room except for whoever recorded that CD for us. God bless them. But we were there caught up like in a trance of worship and God is saying, Chuck, this is what it's for. This is what it's all about. This is what you'll be doing for the rest of your life. And I remember looking at them going, this is what we're supposed to do. This is what we're supposed to do forever. This is it forever. This is what we're supposed to do. That was way before I ever read Revelation where you see the, 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 the living creatures before the throne day and night, night and day singing. I had no idea, but here I am going, this is it. This is what I'm made for. I'm not a musical person. I mean, I like music, you know, but anyways, but that's what's happening. And it's because God dwells in this like, and by the way, by the way, before the throne, you talk about a rock concert, the rock of ages. This is out, like it says that there are thunders and lightning, voices of a tumult, a multitude, voices, thunders, lightning, and an emerald rainbow coming out of his throne. You've never heard an electric guitar symphony like this. This makes the Trans-Siberian Orchestra look like Looney Tunes. This is God's throne. It's heavy metal. I'm serious. <laughs> Someone once said that when David was swinging his sling, that was the first rock song that ever played because of the... Come on, that's funny. <clears throat> How many of you guys know that Jesus is the son of David? How many of you guys know Jesus, when he was 12 years old, told his parents, I have to be about my father's business. So he knew who his heavenly father is. Do you think when he sees David right now in heaven, do you think he honors him any less of a father? I think he walks by him just the same way he would Joseph, his adoptive father on earth. I think he sees David and he knows this is, this is my great, great grandfather. And he honors him as a father. He's, he is the son of David. Jesus is musical. You don't get outside, like this is, this is in his DNA. You can, you can do studies on the Renaissance, on art and beauty and how the, our, our Christian culture has affected society and the world. And you'll see it's influenced all music. It's influenced all artwork. Now, obviously things, you know, can go off into a counterfeit and be bad, but all music, all, all artwork has been influenced by the beauty of Jesus. And I'll say in the places where it does get counterfeited, it's because people have lost their beauty. They've lost true beauty. So in that room, I just, I remember just the, the revelation, that divine knowing, this is what we're made for. This is what we're made to do to stand in his presence and to sing his songs. Uh, Mike Bickles said, when, you, when he's singing, you're singing back to him what he's singing over you. So when I, he's singing, I love you, I can sing back, I love you. He sings, he sings it, Rob, I love you. I love you with an everlasting love. Over and over again in the Psalms, they say, your, your loving kindness, your faithful love, And this is what he's singing over us. He is a musical God. He is rejoicing over us. <clears throat> so that was not, not what I was going to preach on this morning. Um, I feel like it's really important for us to really consider, to really consider who God is in his nature and, and to answer the question, why music? Because God, because it's who he is. It's who he is in his nature. It's not 
this logical thing. It's because God is love. God is beauty. God is musical. And this is, it's, it's like, it's just how he expresses himself to us. And again, it's all throughout the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Moses, after it's, you know, they sing it in victory and battles. Moses, after they cross the Red Sea, how many of you guys have read the song of Moses and Miriam? He has thrown the horse and rider into the sea. They declare their victory through song. I mean, the Israelite people were a musical people. And we are too as the church. So God is not um, this uptight um, deity. In fact, the the other nations, one of the the things about even uh, the law in the Old Testament that was actually um, hope-inducing was the fact that they knew what God required of them. I mean, think about the joy that that would give you. The other gods, they didn't know. They actually thought, it was like, on, they were very like whimsical. On, on any whim, they thought that that other God, whoever it is, could just slay them. That wasn't the Israelite perspective. They, they, they knew what God required of them and it was hope inducing to them. They knew that God was um, full of love. It says in, uh, in Exodus, um, I think it's 34 verse six, that he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He's slow to anger. He's faithful to bring justice. That's the next part of the verse. But what it means, if you guys have ever seen this on the Bible Project, they do a really good um, uh, podcast about this. Is it mean the the, the slow to anger? It means he's long of nose. Now, if that if God isn't funny, come on, that's funny. If you read these things, are hilarious. He's long of nose. So when you get angry, what happens? You get hot, right? you get hot in your nose. It's like you, you've seen in all the cartoons, steam blows out of the ears. It blows out of the nostrils. What is that? When God parts the Red Seas, what does it say? It says out of the blast of his nostrils. Why? Because he was angry. <laughs> it's like that was part of his emotions, by the way. That is part of his emotions. Um, and so, but the reality is that one good, beautiful thing about who God is, is that he is long of nose. It takes, he has patience with us. He doesn't just, uh, he doesn't just on the drop of a dime, suddenly get angry and he's ready to smite us. That's not how he works. He is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And this, this one aspect of God's nature is sung over and over and over and over again. You can't read through the Psalms without seeing your loving kindness is everlasting, which is he's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Um, up at the House of Prayer in Kansas City, they talk about the prayer room being a, a, uh, <clears throat> a musical seminary. So they go and they sing, but they're singing until they believe. They're singing until they believe it. So they sing the Bible, they sing the word, just like we were doing this morning. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Where's that at? That's Psalm 119, right? So many of us, like if we're not feeling connected to the word, music becomes this avenue to connect our emotions, to connect our heart to the reality of his truth. So we sing it until we believe it. The singing seminary, there's so many amazing things about how music connects your brain and your mind and your heart. There are, for, so for you people who are very analytical like me, the science behind music is amazing. How it literally connects brain waves and connects frequencies in your mind and brain to actually begin to remember the truth of what God's word is. That's why it's really important when we do write our songs to make sure we're writing it according to the word instead of just like our journal or something like that. It's like, God loves all of our emotions and our ideas, but how many of you know that this is true? I, I, I can be fickle. I can feel all sorts of different things. So the importance of singing the word of God is, is, is paramount. Um, Mike Bickle would talk about uh, uh, sing and, and praying the word back to yourself. So sitting in your quiet time, uh, pray reading the word of God. And I, I say, I take sing and pray and I, I combine them. You know, it's like I sing it. I, I was reading, let's turn to Psalm 51. Actually, hold on, I'll, I'll time out. I'll, I'll, I'll get there in a second. But I was doing this last night. I was trying to prepare, talking to Brad. Brad and I were <clears throat> chatting. I, again, I think, I can't even remember if it was Saturday or Friday. That's how, was it Friday? And just, you know, getting to share with one another um, as two pastors and, and being able like, just to share like, 
the difficulties we're experiencing. And anyways, it was really powerful to do. We don't get a ton of opportunity to do that. Um, But what happened is we ended up in prayer at the end of the night. And we went, it's just amazing, right? You can go from being down to like the flips, the switch flips. And now because of prayer, everything's changing. And I wasn't, I wasn't feeling a lot at all leading up to, to like preparing for today or anything. And last night, um, I had, um, some worship playing in the house and I sat down and I just started sing, praying the word over me. Um, I ended up in Psalm 51 and, and just weeping over the word of God, singing the word of God. It just becoming that revelation. Like, I, you know, you, suddenly you know it because you're reading it, singing it, listening to it, saying it back to him in worship and in a song. And then now, instead of just knowing the word in, in your mind, you, you're experiencing it in your heart. It's turning it on for you in a, in a much deeper way. So this, I just wanted to share, this is, I was going to go into um, the Sermon on the Mount today. And I, I think I, I'll just briefly give you an idea of, of what I wanted to share with that, but keep it pretty short. So <clears throat> I know, you know, many of us are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5. It begins at Matthew 5. But I read a quote, and I'll try to wrap this all up. But I read a quote um, in a book called Bonhoeffer about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm not gonna quote it perfectly because I don't have it with me. But he said he was convinced that we, the church needs a new monasticism. How many of you guys know what monasticism is? Monasticism would be like those monks, people of prayer who would spend their days. Like for example, um, a biblical monastic would have been Anna in the New Testament. It says she lived in the temple. She lived in the house of God. Uh, Simeon was a monastic. He was in the house of God, waiting to see as an old man. These are two older people who were like that. Of course, there were moves of God throughout the ages of, of basically prayer, where people would devote themselves to um, extended times of prayer. And some of those would have been like the, the Catholic monks or monastics during the, like the 11th and you know, 12th century and things like that. And they would spend time, and some of them would do radical things, and some of them would do things that were off or a little wild. Um, but, but generally, their hearts were in the right place. And some of those we would call like the Christian mystics, like uh, Teresa of Avia, um, And these people would just devote themselves deeply to the presence of God in prayer and to living a lifestyle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, how many of you guys know, to be an American, it's very important to understand the Declaration of Independence in the United States Constitution? Anybody? These are our defining national documents as an American, right? So an American identity would be to to understand the First Amendment, right? Freedom of speech, things like that. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the Kingdom. So it's very important for us to understand what Jesus was teaching about his nature and what is required of us, or as it says over and over again, blessed, it will be well with us to do these things, right? So Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that he was convinced, and this is during the time of Hitler, when in, in Germany, the, 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 the nation of Luther, Martin Luther, um, had become very cold in their worship. They had become very academic, and there's nothing wrong with that, except for when your heart's not in it, right? They'd become very academic. They were very intelligent people, but they had been... Um, they had drifted off so far that when Hitler was on the rise, they didn't see the writing on the wall and they were actually very, very uh, complicit in um, allowing Hitler to rise to power, okay? So who Bonhoeffer was, was Bonhoeffer is this prophet, pastor, theologian in the middle of the time who is coming alive to things like worship, simple devotion, and the Sermon on the Mount and prayer, and his quote was that there has to be a new monasticism, not like the old order where things were very much about rigidity and self, uh, self, um, 
What am I trying to say? Like, uh, you know, fasting until you're dead, basically. Like, fasting is great, but it does, it's not, a spirit, you know, you don't get a spiritual merit badge for it. And there's these ideas that they had back then. So he was like, it doesn't need to be like this old order, but we need this new monasticism where we have a, an extended devotion to prayer and to the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? So with that said, let me read verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. So to kind of understand the context, Jesus has just called his disciples in chapter four. And it says in chapter four, verse 23, and he went through all, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, he was healing every disease. So uh, central to the gospel is healing. He was healing every disease and healing every affliction among the people. It says the fame of him spread out. So people are following him around. He's got, he's got a posse at this point, right? So Matthew 5 picks up. It says, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. This is like Jesus' Sinai moment. This is like that second where Jesus begins to, they begin to realize that this man is greater than Moses, okay? <clears throat> so he goes up on the mountain and he sat down with his disciples and they came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, we'll go through these. But before we move on to this, let me real quickly. So many of you guys know, you've studied blessed and you know that it means like happy or fortunate. Um, I was reading commentary last night and I thought this was actually more helpful. It says, it will be well with. So uh, read it like this. It will be well with the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It will be well with those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Okay, we'll get through the rest of those in a second. But so first beatitude, we, they call these the beatitudes. It's a rhetorical element that many like Jewish people and teachers would have used in Jesus' day. So the beatitudes, uh, the, the attitudes that we're supposed to have as Christ followers, right, um, are very important. But I want to turn to Psalm uh, 51 real quick to give you an idea of what kind of worship the Lord is actually looking for. Again, this is the constitution of the kingdom. This is our declaration of independence. This is who we are as Christ followers. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, and I just want to encourage you as a believer to spend and dedicate your life to prayer and understanding the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Because this is central. It'll be more and more important as pressure and persecution increases on the church that we respond in the spirit of Jesus. Okay? So when the world is pressing down on us, do we respond like I talked about earlier in irritation, retaliation? Or are we responding like Christ followers staying poor in spirit when they persecute us. And as it says later on, that we bless them, all right? So there's so much to go here, but this is the, the lifestyle that Jesus had for us. Let me read Psalm 51. This is the first beatitude. And again, there's so many, it's, it's, in, it's, it's impossible, like really. So I love to, to see the places where in the New Testament, it, it like sends it back to the Old Testament. They're like these hyperlinks, right? It's almost impossible to read through uh, the Sermon on the Mount um, and do and follow all the Old Testament links because it, it would take you like a week because every verse points you back to something in the Old Testament where God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So here we are in Psalm 51, um, verse 17. It says, the sacrifices of God. Now, you guys know, so Psalm 51, okay? Psalm 51 is David, the whole context of Psalm 51 is David writing from a heart of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. That's Psalm 51. Create in me a clean spirit, O God. Renew a right spirit within me, right? It starts off, have mercy on me, O God. According to what? Your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So Psalm 51 is, is really David, this, the, man of, the man who was after God's heart. We're getting to see even he, in his sin, he would go to God in poorness of spirit. 
in verse 17 of Psalm 51, after all of that, he, he, it goes through like the first half is his repentance. The second half, and actually verse 13, it says then. It's the transitional moment. He says, then after this, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He talks about being delivered from blood guiltiness and just kind of like the, the positive things of what he's going to experience now that he's turned back to God. So then it says in Psalm, in the, in the verse 17, it says the sacrifices of God. So after all of that, what we're, be, what we're seeing is the humility that David had and how God responds to that. It says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, that kind of heart you will not despise. It says in Isaiah 66 verse two, that God dwells in the highest heavens and with the lowly. It says he's, his throne is in heaven, but earth is his footstool. And he doesn't, he doesn't dwell on earth with the, the well-to-do, you know, the Hollywood elite or whoever it is, right? Is he, he comes to the broken. He comes to the lowly. His presence is with the lowly. Moses, it says in, uh, in Genesis that Moses was the most humble man on the earth. That, that doesn't mean that Moses was like the most pious. That means he was the most broken he was the most uh, humble, spiritually weak, recognizing his um, poverty spiritually before the Lord. So um, when we talk about blessed are the poor in spirit, what that means is that we recognize, um, we recognize and bear our desperate plight. That was a, a quote from a commentary. Recognizing and bearing how desperate we are in life without God. But how many of you know Jesus came and we don't have to be without God? But we come to him and we recognize, Lord, I'm humble, I'm, I'm, I'm contrite. It says, this kind of spirit, this kind of heart, you will not despise or you will not ignore. So last night when I was praying through uh, Psalm 51, you know, certain things, you know, even like the ways I interact with my kids or my wife and, you know, just my sin coming up before the Lord, not, not in this way where I feel shame or condemnation, but the true kind of like conviction of like, oh Lord, this is, oh, this isn't pleasing to you, but Jesus, you do not despise a broken and contrite heart. Wash me like you. So it says in, in, in Psalm 51, wash me with hyssop. You know that that was the branch they, they used in the Old Testament during Passover. They, they put the blood on the doorpost. They would put the blood on the altar. It's this idea of his cleansing blood washing me. It says, make me white as snow. That's something to sing about. So this is what it means to be poor in spirit. What time is it? So that's what it means to be poor in spirit. When we come to the Lord in spiritual humility, he will not turn you away. I was thinking last night, that all of my victory in the Lord, whatever victory I've had, whatever success I've had in Jesus, um, it has only come in places of my deepest brokenness and humility before him. I did not have success because I picked myself up by my bootstraps, figured it out and worked harder. I had success because I went to him humbly and cried out for mercy and grace. And suddenly, like what prayer does is it, is it takes this vacuum in my heart, this empty space and fills it. It's like an empty, it's like a sailing ship where there is no wind. When I pray, suddenly the wind of God blows and fills the sail and now there's movement and momentum in my life before where there was deadness. I remember last night, just God in these different places where I feel so weak, I feel so broken. I feel like dead that this isn't this thing, whatever this thing is, this promise or hope, this desire, I don't feel like I can get there, God. And the truth is apart from you, I can't. A broken and contrite heart, you do not despise. And I'm crying out before him, poor in spirit, not because of me or anything, but the Holy Spirit, what does it say? Paul says, his spirit is inside you making intercession with groanings too deep for words. There is a gift in the Holy Spirit of prayer and tears where if you don't know what to say, he will pray with you and through you. And again, one of the best ways to do it is just to open the word and start reading it and praying what it says. So <clears throat> we can rejoice in the Lord. We can sing songs to him. 
I truly believe what God is doing in this day is that he is raising up a people of dedicated, this is what he's always been doing, but it's increasing as the day is approaching when, of, of his return. And he is raising up, like Bonhoeffer saw prophetically in 1929, 1930, a people dedicated to prayer and to the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. And I believe that as that is like, again, that's not just, yes, it's when sad things or bad things happen or when they're suffering, but it's also this spirit of intercession when I mourn with others. I weep with those who weep. I rejoice with those who rejoice. I, I allow my heart to connect with the heart of God in the things that make him happy and the things that make him sad. Does sin break my heart? in my own life and in the world. When I see the world tragically bound in their sin, do I, am I quick to judge them or I am quick to weep for them? Blessed, it will go well for those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. So how many guys are super amped about meekness? I heard one definition of meekness as power under control, that the word actually means something like a sword that is unsheathed, or excuse me, a sword that is sheathed. So I have the, the, the power, but it's this power with humility, okay? So it could also mean gentleness. Not very many of us are very excited about gentleness, but I tell you that if somebody is soaked in a spirit of anger and rage, a gentle answer turns away wrath. You can multiply the problem by meeting fire with fire, or you can diffuse the problem with meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they, are, for they shall inherit the earth. So it's like, it will go well for you to do this, and if you do this, this is what you will receive. It's the constitution of the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Those with clean hands and a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pause right there for a second. The first entrance, the first place in the Bible that mentions the sons of God are a group of sons who are in rebellion. It's in, it's in Genesis, right before the flood narrative. It says that the sons of God look on the daughters of men, right? And they see that they are beautiful, and it says they come to them and they, it's this, this like second rebellion in the Bible. It's the second rebellion. And it's actually, the first rebellion obviously is the garden. The second one is, is not just our rebellion on earth, but there's the heavenly rebellion. So it's the sons of God. It's God's heavenly family. These angels, these spiritual beings in heaven, they rebel against God. And, and then it creates a big problem on earth and God sends a flood, Right? So what we see is in the New Testament, there's a redemption happening. There is a son of God now who is a faithful son. His name's Jesus. And he's a son that begets sons. So this verse, when we read the Bible, when we read sons of God, there, there's a lot of teachers will go in kind of like the Roman interpretation of what it means to be a son. That's true. Paul actually often talks about it in that context. But there's another context, the B'nai Elohim. The B'nai Elohim is the Hebrew word, sons of God. This is God's heavenly host, his divine counsel. So when God says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God, when Paul talks about when you walk according not to the flesh, but according to the spirit in Romans chapter eight, that we'll see a suffering on this side of the earth, but it will not compare to the glory we'll receive in heaven as resurrected sons. It's talking about you being a council member, you being a heavenly host, council member of God's family on earth as it is in heaven, where God in the garden had 
sons, Adam and Eve, who rebelled on earth, he will see sons who are faithful on the earth in the, in, in the last days. And that's what we're, we are partakers of that. When we become peacemakers, we're not simply adopted and, we, and that's, that's all beautiful and all of that metaphor is amazing and true, but it's more than just simply you, you're, you are part of the family it's, that is absolutely the truth. Like we were his family, we rebelled against him. But what, what, what was our operational status as sons of God in the family? We were his council members. The second place in the Old Testament where it mentions the sons of God is in Job. When Satan comes in, right? And there's a divine council, there's sons of God. Guess what they're doing? They're having a delegation. They're talking about what are we gonna do with Job? What should we do here? And it's these, these, these members of God's heavenly host, their job was actually to help, to coordinate with God and orchestrate things on the earth. So our status as sons of God, sons of God is actually to help and, and, and to operate with Christ in outworking the kingdom of God on earth. Like it says in Hebrews, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because you're a council member. You, when in faith, you put your faith in Christ, you become this kind of peacemaking person. You put on the clothes of the kingdom. You have access to the throne of God. You're a son of God. Now, again, obviously son and daughter of God isn't about sex. It's about operational status. Who are you in the heavenly host? You are a saint. The Bible says you are a holy one. That's what saint means. All right. Um, there's a really good book on that. If you're interested in some like more information on that, you can come meet me after service and I can point you to that resource. It's a really great book. So blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a book called um, Tortured for Christ. Have any, has anybody read that? It's by a guy named Richard Wormbrand. I really encourage you to read this book. Um, it is more of like a prayer and a plea than it is like an academic lesson. Uh, he was a Romanian uh, prisoner during the communist occupation during that time. He was beaten. Uh, he he w witnessed children murdered in front of their fathers and mothers. He experienced incredible persecution. And there's a, you guys have heard this saying, love the sinner, hate the sin. He said that. He could be, he was so filled with the spirit that during um, being locked in a gulag, a, a, a communist prison camp, that he fell in love with his captors and preach, would preach the gospel to them. He would say, hate the sin, love the sinner. He had his feet beaten so badly that he couldn't walk. Blessed are you. How many of you guys feel favored when you're persecuted. How many of us have experienced in the West true persecution other than like being canceled on Twitter or something? Right now, um, there's Uyghur Muslims who are being killed. In China, they have social credit scores. You can't, um, you can't say, you don't have freedom of speech. You can't say or do certain things without being a social pariah. Uh, if you're a Christian, you have to go underground. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. This is for you high schoolers, right? Or I don't know if you guys, who's in high school, but you know, blessed are you when people say mean things to you. <laughs> blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Listen to this. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your, your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He goes on to say, you are the salt of the earth. And he talks about what if salt has lost its savor. I'm not gonna go through. The Sermon on the Mount goes from Matthew 5 all the way through the end of Matthew 7. Um, what these promises are in chapter five here at the beginning these are the promises and fulfillment of what happens when we hold fast to the Lord all the way to the end. We, we get to embrace and experience the Beatitudes with him right now, but the ultimate fulfillment we find, and how many of these promises are blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for the kingdom. The kingdom is the summation, the fullness of the restoration of all things. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the restoration of all things. It's Ephesians 6, it's Ephesians 1, 10 actually. Talks about the restoration, the culmination of all things. When everything on earth, all the wrong has been made right because Christ has come back. It says the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. So Jesus is coming back and he will restore all things. And for those who walk out, the kingdom people, those who follow the constitution of the kingdom, these are promises. These are the bedrock which we can stand on. It's a firm foundation that we can't be shaken from. So we can rejoice. We have joy in these things. We have hope in these things. And we know that not only do we have joy and hope in them, we have the ability through the Holy Spirit to live them out. That's the first one. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. When I recognize, uh, we talked about this um, during the discipleship. Uh, we had a, a group over here and I was sharing a story of mine. I saw a vision once of a, like a graph of a human being and it was an empty person. Not, not like an empty, but it was a graph, just an outline of a person. And I heard the Holy Spirit or heard the Lord say, Chuck, when you eat of the tree of life, and I, it was like I saw this person get completely filled. He said, when you eat from the fruit of the tree of life, it leaves no room for any other fruit. When we eat from this fruit of the Beatitudes, when we eat from the teachings of Jesus, it fills us through the Holy Spirit. It gives us divine empowerment, grace to actually live it out. So when we think about, you know, how does someone have joy in persecution? Because they're a heavenly man. They're living in the kingdom. They're not of this world. This isn't about, flesh cannot bring this about. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. We cannot live this stuff out on our own accord. This comes out by relationship with God. Does this make sense? So I think there's two things. You know, this morning, if I think about what is God saying, I think he's, one, I think he's trying to tell us there's, war, there's joy in our warfare. Many of us have been experiencing this, I don't know what to call it, and I'm, I don't want to be like hyper charismatic, but it's like this, I want to quit spirit. I don't know what to call it. Or like, we've just been hearing this voice, quit, quit, quit. Don't keep going, just stop. Nobody cares anyways. Nobody sees you. It's not worth it. And I, I feel like the, the antidote to this is joy. The antidote to this is stirring yourself up in your most holy faith, praying, reading the Bible, doing simple things, but finding that joy, just like these children this morning. And then secondarily to that, finding ourselves in the place of prayer, finding our joy, really digging down into the teachings of Jesus. What is the Sermon, uh, the sermon on the Mount lifestyle? What is that? I believe, and I, I think Brad is with me on this. We've had several conversations about this, but we want King's Church to be marked as a community of believers dedicated to prayer and living the Sermon on the Mount. That when the world is reviling us and persecuting us, that our response isn't one of bitterness and agitation, but it's one of responding in love. Amen? And when we do that, this, this verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, right? The next thing it says, <clears throat> it says that you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. When we live that out, we become a witness we're a witness. We see him and they see him in us. Amen. So we have things to sing about. We have joy this morning. Can we just stand and I'll pray. And then um, Brad, I don't know if we want to have worship or just release. Okay. Father, we just thank you so much this morning for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your son, Jesus, our model and our example who lived a life of humility. Thank you, Jesus, that you came down. You didn't just stay in heaven. You didn't just condescend from far away, but you came down in humility, despising the shame 
looking at the joy set before you, you endured the cross. Jesus, I just pray for our family here at King's Church right now. God, I ask you for joy. I ask you for supernatural joy despite our circumstances or our happenings. Father, I pray that um, you would teach us how to pray, that you would show us what it means to connect with you in prayer, to spend time with you in the secret place, to spend time with you, it says in Psalm 51, in the secret heart, that you would give us wisdom in the secret heart. Jesus, I pray that you would make us a people who would seek you. It says in Luke 11 that if we seek you with our whole heart, we'll find you. God, I just ask you right now for a spirit of prayer. That Lord, that what Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw, that new kind of monasticism, those devoted to prayer, that Lord, you would raise us up at King's Church and make us a praying people. And Father, that out of that place, we would pray your word, that we would read your word and pray your word, that we would recognize the constitution of your kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, that, Lord, you would make us a people dedicated to the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, that, Lord, if Jesus really was that new and greater Moses, we have a higher law, the law of love. And, Lord, you said that if we love you, we'd follow you and obey your commands. You said the greatest commandment is this, to love God with all of your heart and to love your neighbors as yourself. Father, I just pray that you would just make us that Sermon on the Mount people, that you would put joy in our mouths and joy in our heart, that, God, we would lead a procession of worship in Lexington, Kentucky. And I pray, God, that we would be like David, that we could all say we will be yet more undignified than this, that we would leave a legacy for our children and see them ordained in praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.